Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now on to the episode with your host, Harry Kemsley. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Jane's World of Intelligence. Hello, Sean. Thanks for joining us always. Hi again, Harry. About a year ago, Sean, we introduced the concept of economic statecraft. We talked about the activities of countries like China and Russia and how that economic statecraft can be used for furthering national interests in a variety of ways and how we can interpret some of the activities that could be described as activities being conducted in plain sight, hiding in plain sight, as being ways of actually driving outcomes that are supportive of their national interests. Now, when we did that, we had Claire Chu, a real expert on this matter, and I'm delighted to invite her back. Hello, Claire. Great to be back. Thanks for having me again. Pleasure, as always. Claire is a senior China analyst with Jane's as part of the Intel Track team, which examines the economic statecraft activities of China and Russia. She specializes in the geopolitical and the national security implications of China's global economic activity. She launched a Belt and Road Monitor in 2017, which provides a comprehensive bi-weekly overview of China's overseas trade, investment activities and policy developments. She previously held research roles at think tanks, including the Mercator Institute of China uh, Studies in Berlin, the Project 2049 Institute in Arlington and the Center for the National Interest in Washington, D.C. She's also worked on rule of law and governance issues at the Congressional Executive Commission on China and at Human Rights Watch. Claire has also testified before the U.S. House of Representatives and her commentary has been featured in major media outlets in the United States, in Europe and Asia. Claire, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thanks again. Looking forward to it. Claire, you recently were part of the U.S. Congressional Staff Delegation to China, which I know can coincided with the third Belt and Road Forum in Beijing. Really, really interested to know what you found out, what your insights were from your involvement in that, that really important session. I mean, it was really fascinating. Um, I was delighted to have the opportunity to travel to China in a delegation. I was with a group of congressional staffers, bipartisan for the United States. And this was the first such uh, staff del in four years. So the Chinese side was, I think, very excited. Um, the U.S. side was also you know, keen to, to see what had changed since the last visit. Um, we were hosted by the International Department of the CCP, which is a unit that deals primarily party-to-party -party relations, so CCP with congressional entities, as opposed to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in China, which primarily deals state-to-state. Um, -state. And so the way that this group tends to coordinate these meetings, um, we were able to meet with folks at Ministry of Commerce, the folks at um, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, United Front Work Department, National Party Congress, and just a really um, a really interesting, really high level, you know, group of uh, officials, senior officials, vice ministers, um, staffers who were primarily experts on North America. And they had just as many questions for us as we did for them. So before we go on, what's the purpose of the visit? That, that staff delegation, what is the actual aim of the visit from the U.S. or indeed the Chinese perspective? What are they trying to get out of this delegation visit? From the U.S. side, I think, and, and the Chinese side as well, a lot of it educational. Right. For the U.S. side, um, we've seen 
an increase in China-related legislation coming out. There are a lot of staffers that are now focusing on China to some extent as part of their policy portfolio, whether that means trade, economics, national security, right, military, or diplomacy, um, and human rights as well. And so for a lot of the staffers, you know, this is one of the only opportunities to travel to China and to be able to meet with these entities and to hear from them what their key concerns are, you know, what are the key priorities on the Chinese side and how do they view U.S. policymaking, U.S. perspectives. And from the Chinese side as well, um, a lot of the, the folks that we met with, you know, had studied in the U.S., have traveled in the U.S., but they had a lot of questions about the U.S. system or about the Western systems, right? How do, for example, elections really are how are elections going to work next year right, right. who is going to be president um and similarly how are you know taiwan's elections going to pan out does the u.s how much control does u.s have right so there are some assumptions being made why did nancy pelosi go to taiwan right um did you tell nancy pelosi to go to taiwan right did biden tell her to go to taiwan um why did she why did she go and so again there was a lot of there were a lot of narratives there was a lot of um messaging you know, we were traveling with our our escorts or liaisons from the department um, and, you know, what we were very busy from morning to night. And even though a lot of the sessions were controlled and the meetings were um, predetermined, we weren't really running around the cities of, you know, Beijing or Shanghai on our own. Um, the way that these messages were delivered, the people that were selected to meet with us and the questions that they brought to the table were incredibly um, eliminatory, mm-hmm. especially at a time when 2024 is looming, right? Mm-hmm. A quarter of the world's democracies are having elections. Um, Taiwan will be having elections. Russia, yeah, some, some type of election. Um, Ukraine will be having elections, right? And the United States as well. Um, and China is very, very concerned about this. I think this came across in a lot of the meetings. They're very worried about ties worsening. They're very worried about unpredictability. They would rather have a stable relationship, whether it's a positive or negative one, than an unpredictable one. What about the, the fact that it coincided with the the uh, the bricks, the Belt and Road? How do you think that dynamic was working? the The day that we arrived in Beijing, you know, there were signs everywhere. There's a lot of excitement. Um, it's a very, very big undertaking, right? Where um, dozens of state leaders and uh, representatives from multilateral institutions from even academia, nonprofits, everywhere, come to China. And it this is the first, or this is the third Belt and Road Forum, but it's yeah. the first one since COVID. Yeah. You know, the last one I think was 2019 or so, 2020. And so it was significant for China to be able to put this on again. With that said, this year the turnout was lower than previous years. Right. right? We have seen a lot change during COVID. The you know Italian representatives you know are not we're not here this year, and um, we saw a lot of Western European representatives also you know weren't present. On the other hand, Putin was, mm-hmm. and we also saw China um, extend and sort of um, friendship towards some countries that one might not have expected to become a part of such a such as, organization. Such as Afghanistan right. know, is a country I think that will be joining or is interested in joining the Dalton Road. And I think this speaks to a broader trend with a lot of these economically driven initiatives and projects that China has going on. You know, not just with the Dalton Road, which is again ostensibly a regional economic connectivity and trade project, um, similar with BRICS, right, which is originally started as a as a way to um, bring rising economies together. Right. 
And the recent um, invitation, I think is about a month ago, for six new BRICS members to join included their applications, I think, from 30 to 40 countries. Um, and within those 30 to 40 countries, six received invitations. Three of those countries are in the Middle East. And then I think it was the United Arab Emirates, um, Saudi Arabia. Those generally make sense when you're thinking about the economic conditions, yeah, right? Yeah. There's also Argentina, Ethiopia, and Egypt. Um, right. I think it might have been seven, six. There's also um, Iran. Iran, okay. Iran, That's which interesting. is not known as an economic heavyweight. Right. So, presum so presumably that's got more about influence and politics than it has about economics. Presumably, right. Presumably. You would expect that there are countries in Pakistan, you know, didn't receive an invite. There were Southeast Asian countries that had reportedly applied and um, were, did not receive invites. But Ethiopia did. And even though it's still a rising economy, Ethiopia is the home of um, the African Union. Right. right. And Argentina, similarly, rising economy is also the home of many Chinese satellites. So when you start to ask questions, and I, I was able to ask a couple of academics when I was in China recently about this, and the general answer, I received not an official answer, is that Iran was included because China would rather keep Iran close. Right. You would rather have a relationship than not, and sure. you'd rather be have a, a line of communication um, and invite Iran to participate and to to share their thoughts and ideas and be able to, I guess, predict right. know, future future actions as opposed to have no communication at all. Right. Sean, I'm going to bring you in at this point. Thank you, Claire. Um, there's a lot in there, right? I mean, how how does the intelligence community look at a series of events like that, a series of conversations like that? What, what's the kind of things going on behind the, grace, the green base wall, as you called it before? What's going on inside the room? Uh, as always, there's a lot to unpack there. And uh, I'd just like to address the initial thing first, if I may, in terms yeah. of the staff delegations. I always find there's three reasons to have these and that they're all equally as important. But the one that's up front, which is basically information gathering, is probably the, 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 the lowest one of the lot because it's really all about influence. Um, but it's also about diplomacy as well, right. of course. It, the fact that you're talking is always a good thing. Certainly when I was in NATO headquarters, when we used to have the NATO Russian councils and, all, and, and NATO Korean councils then, the fact that we were all in the same room talking was always taken as a positive. So that's the sort of the macro political you know, side of things. But presumably there's no illusion that there is any real talking going on. Oh, that's so very little. I it, mean, it's really know, about get, sending messages. It's being in the room together. Right. Um, now, to answer the second part of the question, there'll be clearly been an awful lot of, we'll just call it information gathering. So it's almost sentiment analysis. But if you're with a group of people for a long time, you can pick up things. I was going to say subliminally, but it's not quite that subtle. But you pick up an awful lot just with how people are behaving, what they're showing you, for instance. So even your schedule, I mean, the fact that they kept you really, really busy would have been partly to keep you off balance and make you so tired that you're thinking, hang on, what have I just seen there? Okay, I'm an it guy, so I'm always going to see the negative side <laughs> of anything. But, but in terms of of taking it to the, you know, looking at the the, the bricks piece and the Belt and Road, you know, I, I think what we're seeing there and and the, and the different countries that were involved and invited is is for me is probably the one of the most interesting things, because I think what we're seeing now with you want to call it the great game this time with China, it's like who do they think they need to influence and shape and 
taking an opportunity in, in what we're seeing is in political void. So, you know, the fact that they're engaged in the Middle East is not an accident. I mean, particularly seeing, you know, after the after the horrific events that have happened in 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 Gaza and Israel, you know, the fact that, that the the new accords are probably on hold, China will just go straight in there, as they did with Afghanistan, of course. Now, China have been involved in Afghanistan for a long, long time, but they've always been quite discreet and very focused on where they've been. So rare earth mineral mines, for example, they've been there forever. But, you know, if they can see the opportunity to do both, both enhance their economic development, but also influence and even direct with these countries, the ones that they want to, they will do so. Okay. Very interesting what you said about Iran, because, you know, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. I'm not saying it's quite that much, but, you know, Iran does have an influence with some nations that, that and we don't engage with them the same way that a China would. And then the final thing I was going to say is on that one is that for, for China, for me, it's all transactional. You know, everyone says, oh, yeah, you know, China are now got allied with Russia. I mean, that's the standard one. You know, China and Russia have been at each other's throats forever and will continue to do so unless it suits both of them not to be. Mm-hmm. So there's so much to gain from from that sort of thing. Yeah. All right. Well, look, as ever with the uh, World of Intelligence podcast, we try to pivot the conversation into so what for open sources and how we can derive intelligence from that. So Claire, you've been involved in this, this particular topic area for a, a long time. You are a genuine world-class expert on it. What is open source doing to help you understand what might actually be going on with China right now? Is it actually an inflection from the economic to diplomatic? Is it both? And what are we seeing from open sources that might help you discern what's really going on here? Absolutely. We see countries like China when they're on the world stage at events, you know, like we've seen recently with the forum, there are a lot of big statements made. There are a lot of documents that are released, right? There is a lot of publicity, a lot of handshaking. And among those documents are lists of agreements, right? We signed 100 agreements, you know, we reach this many agreements on, you know, tech sectors, we're going to do this much in agriculture, right? We're going to do this much in this region, we're going to invest billions of dollars in, say, Peru. And it's easy to read these headlines and assume that there are certain strategic interests or that China is is leaning in a certain direction. Um, But the way that I tend to look at these projects, it's very transactional, it's very granular. Right. We go and we look at the entities involved. Mm-hmm. We try to understand what the actual value is of the project. Is has the money actually been dispersed? Right. Um, where's the money actually is it going back to the Chinese companies? And a lot of the times you also find that these forums are just platforms or venues for the announcement of these projects. Many of these have been signed months, even a year ago. They're right. continuations of a several year long projects. Right. It's really an exercise again in diplomacy and friend making and also um, that essentially this year, it was illustrative of the, some of the bifurcations between China and a lot of Western countries. Again, the lack of participation by key players in the past, like Italy and Greece, right? That was particularly striking this year. Um, but also participation of, again, countries like Afghanistan and Iran in these initiatives, also very striking. Um, and so, I mean, overall with, with Afghanistan, too, when you're looking at the actual amount of investment it's not particularly high. Mm -hmm. The number of projects, the types and range of projects, it's not particularly high. I think that speaks to China's primary interest in Afghanistan, which is really more so stability, stability and order. Yeah. China has 14 border countries. Afghanistan is one of them. If anything, I think China is interested in making sure that all of these regions and all these neighbors and all these friends are in a place so that there is no unrest that could spill over, that there is no um, additional geopolitical crisis right. that it might have to become involved in just due to proximity. 
How much of the um, information that you see in these events, these these platforms as you described it, can you validate in terms of the apparent intent, the statement that's coming out versus what they're actually doing? How much can you actually derive from the open source that helps you sift out the noise from the truth? There's quite a lot out there. You know, uh, when China is engaging economically you know, overseas, the idea is that these are business transactions. These are commercial activities. This is not, you know, backroom side deals. These are not under the table deals, or at least they would not. They don't want you to think that, right? right. So there is a level of open. So they're in plain sight. They are. They are in plain sight. Right. And even for the host government, smaller governments are very, very proud to be signing these agreements. They're very excited to be at these gatherings. Yeah. So the information is out there. It's just about where to look and how you verify the information, right? How you take this information, integrate it with other things you know about the actors involved and their history and the context. And you start to get a pretty pretty good picture of what is happening on the ground when you actually look at the movement of money and you know, what that says about um, state priorities and where the resources are actually going. I remember the last time we spoke about this, Sean, we looked at a couple of examples. I'm sure we talked about um, a port, a civilian port that had been configured in a way that probably could only be explained if you were going to use it for a military purpose. We talked about security forces being um, brought in from China to man certain aspects of certain facilities and so on. I think the point there is you could interpret what's going on that we can see in plain sight. You could interpret in different ways. And I think probably the purpose of what we're trying to do here is demonstrate that there are multiple different ways to interpret it. It could be seen, as I think you've just said, clear. it could be just seen as an explicit commercial transaction between a Chinese entity and a third-party country entity. However, when you see what they've done elsewhere, when you see who else, who else has been involved, the reputational issues perhaps, you begin to see alternative interpretations. Is that not really the point that from an open source intelligence perspective, Sean, we really want to get under? It, it is very much. And you know, I can't go through a podcast without mentioning the word tradecraft. <laughs> and, and what you've both done actually is, is take validated information and and you know, financial transactions don't lie you know people tend to get very focused when they're dealing with large amounts of money so the fact is that you know a transaction has happened yes you can obfuscate it but you can get to the ground truth there the question then becomes so that validates the information so this is actually happening whether you're you know investing in a port in sri lanka or wherever it happens to be that has happened so that validates the information with that transaction. But then what you do is the analysis, the, what I always call the so what. Mm. You know, are you doing it purely for economic reasons, which you can work out by looking at transactions the other way? Or are you doing it for influence? And that's the tricky bit, which is where experts like Claire comes in and say, OK, what does this actually mean? And that's where you bring in all the other elements of the open source intelligence domain, of which there are many, um, including press reporting, that will say, OK, you know, it might be for a for good economic reasons, but actually, what it's really all about is is the the influence. The fact is that you know they might the Chinese might be propping up a, a an economy that's not doing very well. So why would they influence? Why, sorry, why would they invest and sometimes huge amounts of money? Thinking, well, that makes no sense economically. Well, there's reason for that. And then when you have a look at what the lease is, some of the leases for these ports are really scary if you happen to be the, the you know the recipient country. Mm -hmm. And then you know before you know, it's like oh, we've signed ourselves up to this and are going to be in debt to China forever. So then there is an economic thing, but it's still all about that influence and also power projection. So, so Claire, is the role really here to not pretend that we don't know there's a transaction happening, but to offer up alternative perspectives of that transaction to allow 
the third party country, to use your example, that signed a lease for 100 years for a port facility to understand they may be giving away more than they, they, they understand. Is that really what we're trying to do here from this intelligence perspective? I think in a way, some countries are receptive to this kind of messaging. Right? We saw not that long ago, Fiji ended its police liaison program with China and started moving away from a security point of view. You know, from, from China and its previous agreements. Um, that doesn't mean it's moving, the country's moving away economically, right? There are still strong um, trade ties and mm -hmm. investments activities, but Fiji is would be interested and was interested in aligning the security perspective with the US and with countries like Australia, um, given that those overtures and given the, the efforts that have been made by the US, for example, right. um, in the past year or so to engage. Um, and so there there are these two different um, two elements is the security relationship and then the diplomatic relationship, but also then again, the economic, which a lot of countries can bifurcate very easily. yeah, especially yeah. especially in a world right now where the economy is such a big issue for everybody, you know suddenly to have a few billion yen thrown at you at the moment when you need it most. It's going to have to be one of those things you're going to have to take seriously, right? If you're, if you're struggling economically, you're going to think about that for sure. And for some countries, it does feel like a luxury to care about this. Right. You, countries in the Middle East, for example, if you want to talk to certain leaders or certain entities or institutions about the risk of Chinese digital investment 50 years down the road, it's sticky, surveillance, this and that. It's very easy to say that, well, our problems are quite literally explosive. Right. You know, how are we going to care about this perspective issue 50 years down the road when tomorrow something could happen? And that's what we need to focus. And that's where we need to put our resources. And so when you talk to countries, again, in, for example, the Pacific Islands, there might be other interests like governance and democracy building and or even just social, you know, social issues that they're focused on. And economics, it's just an extra, right. just an extra piece of these relationships. And I guess, and, and then my, my third point on that would be there are a lot of governments that are benefiting right now from both sides, yeah. right? You're seeing for Solomon Islands receiving a shipment of, I think, police equipment. I think it was police equipment from, was it the Australian government? Mm -hmm. um, batons and vests and things like that. Yeah. And then receiving a shipment of, I think, of vehicles, police vehicles from China within a week. And it it's hard to go and say, you know, you should or should not do this. Right. When at present, they're benefiting and presumably making their own calculations about the risk benefits yeah. Yeah, yeah. to engaging and how much to engage with which party. Yeah, for sure. So, Sean, in view of that, one of the things that we've talked about in the past is the way the commercial open source intelligence environment is offering up a perspective. Maybe it's to triangulate what's being seen behind the vault door. Maybe it's being offered up as an indicator of warning. But how do you get to ground truth? If we've said that there are multiple interpretations of what might or might not be going on, is there enough going to be available in the open source environment, do you think, that will actually allow us to see what we what we could describe as being, no, no, the intent actually is this? I think there is. And I think particularly, as I mentioned before, in, in the economic world, because you see actual transactions. Mm -hmm. Now, again, you can have fronts, you can use third parties and all the rest of it. But if you're forensic enough, and this is where, as always, the expertise comes in, as a layman, you can't do it, uh, uh, you know, and, and we see, and again, going off track slightly here, but you see the um, political service people and the and the companies that are supposed to vet these people. It is shockingly um, 
vanilla thin. we'll just say yeah. very very thin um they don't do it properly but that's where expertise comes in you get really into the finances and you know even the accountancy side of things because there are front companies there are you know um front people that you've got to go into the second and third law le- le- level of analysis before you actually get to that ground truth but you can do it because ultimately money is physically moving from one place to another yeah. and people are conducting those transactions yeah but i'd still maintain though claire that a third-party country, particularly well, the example you've given, which is actually benefiting from this investment or this attention from from China, or as you said before, from Russia as well. Previously, surely at the end of the day, they're going to interpret the situation differently. They're going to say, "I disagree with your interpretation. The interpretation you give suggests that this is a very bad outcome." I don't see it that way. What I'm trying to get to is how do you demonstrate to them incontrovertibly that this is not going to be a good outcome for you? Because it's going to be very hard to do that, right? very hard to do that from an open source. And it, it's difficult. And I think you know, a lot of the um, the efforts that have been made have really been just to strengthen engagement mm-hmm. and to be there if a country or a leader decides to take the country different direction. And we have seen a couple of nations do that, right? We have seen, for example, the Philippines has sort of changed its uh, policy when it comes to Chinese investment and um, incre- increased engagement, dramatic engagement with China. And so I think a lot of Western nations that are interested in being alternative, we don't necessarily have the existing infrastructure or really have the state capacity to engage necessarily in the same way that China is. We don't have the same motivations or incentives, right, right. To, or even political will to, um, to be as active as China in, in these ways. But we have to make sure that if a country decides that this is not sustainable for them, whether the debt's not sustainable or the, the strings attached or... You know, they simply want to they simply want to move closer, you know, to other regional partners that that is an option. Right. So before I come to you with the impossible question, which is coming shortly about where next, where is this going? Where's, what's going to have come around the corner? Sean, what, what are the questions being asked today in light of what we're seeing from the third Belt and Road, the BRICS, the new invitations that Claire's mentioned, as well as whatever we've got out of this um, this delegation visit. What are the kind of questions that will be asked inside the Trigraph organisations, both sides of the Atlantic? Yeah, I think the I think the macro question is to what extent, or is a great way to start a question, to what extent is China seeking to influence all nations? And I, and I will come back to that in a moment because we we focus very much on third party, which might be a slightly Western arrogance of us, but anyway, um, influence versus control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what does that mean, therefore, for their global aspirations and their regional aspirations? I mean, we know the regional aspirations, but, you know, how far are they prepared to go? And, you know, if they can do everything economically, which is basically what their strategy would appear to be, do they actually need to mm-hmm. launch their blue water navy, et cetera, et cetera? So, so we see, you know, I see, because I'm an ink guy, dragons everywhere. But is it is it about influence? Is it about technology transfer? And this is where I want to bring it back to, you know, we talk about third party nations, but and I'm going to be controversial now. To what extent does does the economy trump national security? Because it could be argued that China is all over the UK and and the US right now in terms of not just influencing, but you look at certainly from the UK perspective, the the the, 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 the nuclear power industry, mm-hmm. you look at water companies, you look at steel. They are heavy investors already in it. So at what extent do, do the political system think, 
we know what they're up to here, but uh, and academic as well, and mm-hmm. the academia, yeah. big style. Yeah. Um, you know, we know what they're up to here, but we can't do anything about it because we're so so economically dependent. So we'll just deny it. And again, that's being me being a bit cruel about politicians or not. Um, but you know. Because we have that short-term perspective, because every five years we get a new government. Right. Whereas the Chinese sit there and go, you know, with their autocracy, we can look at the long strategic game. So, you know, they can they can filter around at the edges, but we know what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So that's where the big sort of economic question comes in, and which is where I think the real value about these economic tradecraft is that are we seeing strategic trends in sufficient detail to know what they're up to long term? Yeah. So let's talk, let's talk then to the impossible question, Claire. So where next? Where does this go? You, you've been on a delegation visit. Maybe there'll be more of those in the future. You've seen and talked amongst other things about the new invitations, the Belt and Road Initiative. Where is this all heading? Where are we heading with this conversation? What do you think China is really up to, in your professional and expert opinion? I mean, there are, it, it's hard to say exactly where the world is going, which mm-hmm. is maybe the backdrop for where China is going. But I think that... You know, China has been active in some multilateral institutions. China has also felt excluded from many others. For example, the Quad, AUKUS, you know, IPEF, and these are all in China's own backyard. True. So, you know, there really is this active effort, and it has been very, very, very active in the past two or three years to build this alternative set of multilateral institutions and structures and bodies, right, where China can engage, kind of China can seek um, some level of leadership and governance in these spaces. And also China has a has its own space in which the U.S., the U.K. are not necessarily participants right. and is able to shape certain narratives and, um, you know, lead certain projects that through through those through those venues. And so I spoke earlier about this bifurcation, this movement towards a China sort of led order or China led institutions and yeah. Western led institutions. And I, I do think that is the direction that we're seeing increasingly for China economic stability and national security, strategic objectives, much more important than commercial ones. Right, right. And so if you look at the legal mechanisms and financial instruments that China has in place, this is very, very clear. Whether these are data localization laws, cybersecurity laws, national intelligence laws, they all really put national security, Xi Jinping, this concept of a comprehensive national security, all 16 elements above commercial development. And so, you know, with I think with that in mind, this is the way that China is conducting its affairs, right? It's no strings attached, it's win-win for everybody. You know, China has its partners and this is the way that we're doing things and you can have loans we're not going to ask about human rights we're not going to ask about corruption or leadership and that is appealing for a lot of countries and so i think going forward it's absolutely i think it's important to kind of understand how china is making these overtures and understand some of these alignments and where you know western countries could as mentioned earlier engage more or remain present rather than you know leaving a void yeah yeah, very good. So, um, because time is now starting to preparate, Sean, do you have any final thoughts before we go to your final takeaway? Just to reiterate what Claire said, actually, I think we always uh, need to look at China within the lens of their number one priority is internal, political, and economic security, and of course, those two are hand in hand. Yeah. Secondly, there is no question that they they desire and not far off achieving regional hegemony. And then thirdly, and this is a big question: is how much do they want to make that global? 
and how are they going to do it right now it suits them and and it seems to be working pretty well we'll do it through the economy mm-hmm. and that's fine at what stage does the economic situation and the balance change you know their economy economy is flatlining right now um relatively speaking it's still okay compared to you know perhaps some of the western countries but at what stage would the economy tip to an extent that now their internal unrest changes and that's when people start looking overtly to try and yeah. Um, you know, distract attention, et cetera, et cetera. We're nowhere near the, there yet. You mean, you mean in China? In China, yeah, yeah. that's right. Um, you know, uh, or, or at what stage are they so confident that they've got the globe sewn up economically that they can do what they like, yeah. for example, to Taiwan? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so as ever, um, to finish the podcast, your thought to take away for the audience listening. Uh, Claire, I'll come to you first, if you don't mind. If you had one thing you wanted the audience to take away, given this is the second time we've talked about geoeconomic statecraft, the use of economic and perhaps now political influence for your own national interest, what would that one takeaway be? Gosh, that's It's difficult to, I think, have a come up with a, a strategy when it comes to overall China, right? We're, we're talking about so many different components mm-hmm. of Chinese influence and Chinese engagement overseas. Um, but I, again, I think it's really important just to focus also on our own backyards. Mm-hmm. And then again, make sure that, you know, really, really quick example, there are places like Basra, Iraq, where China just opened a consulate general, I think two or three weeks ago. Yep. Basra is the, I think, the number two oil producing region in the country, yep. major port there. You know, important for a number of reasons. And the U.S. had an embassy that closed in 2019 and never reopened, right? And so you have all of these examples, and there are more where China is going in to places that maybe seem a little bit risky. Maybe they don't seem profitable just yet. You know, maybe they're a little bit high conflict, mm-hmm. high conflict, but they're willing to to be there and to stick it out in the hopes of becoming long-term friends or being there when yep. that country or those entities or those leaders need somebody. And again, just focusing, I think, on having those resources and building that capacity to provide support and to be an alternative and to, I think, to, I think, con- continue being a leader in the places where the West has historically excelled, I think, will is sufficient rather than trying to match China one-to-one right. with everything that's being done. Right. That long-term engagement and support, perhaps before it was easy to do so, could be interpreted, couldn't it, as China being the long-term friend and partner that some countries desperately need. Sean, your takeaway? I think it just underscores for me that economic statecraft is a really important issue right now. It always has been, but I think we've become live to it, and it's a really good example of where open source intelligence can and should get engaged but we need to do much more of it yeah i agree with that i think for me the takeaway though is pretty much the same as it was the last time we spoke about this and that is that that there are things happening in plain sight that are absolutely interpretable in different ways and we in the commercial open source intelligence world should be doing our best to make sure that those multiple perspectives are thought about and considered Not everyone will believe them. Some people will choose to disagree with us, but I think it's important we give them multiple perspectives. With that, Claire, thank you for coming back a second time. Uh, The annual event that is the geoeconomic statecraft discussion, maybe we'll do this again before a year has passed, but thank you once more for your time. Great, thank you. This is great. Thanks, Claire. Thank you, Sean. Cheers, Harry. 
Thanks for joining us this week on the world of intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, janes.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode.